Amen. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, or an app with one on it, find uh, the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis, chapter 13. The book of Genesis, chapter 13. We've been working our way uh, steadily through uh, this, this book of the Bible. We, we believe that it's the Word of God that does the work, and so we're going to read God's Word, and we're going to talk about what it says and preach its message uh, this morning. And let's look at Genesis chapter 13. We'll begin reading in verse 1. The Word of God says, So Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. Their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me. Between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen, is not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt and the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valleys and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God. Have you ever felt like the word of God can be a little abstract? Or to make it a little clear, have you ever felt as if the way the Bible's often taught is a little abstract? Maybe it's just me, but I'm a guy who wants tangible examples, something I can look at and go, that's what that looks like. And while I'm, a, I'm a, while I'm a practical guy, I also think that deep and big theology is important. We should dig deep and study deep, but we also should think toward what does this look like to live this out in my own life? And in fact, as we saw last week, 1 Corinthians 10, 11, 
tells us that, that God's word is written. These things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instructions on whom the ends of the ages has come. And that these things we saw were the Old Testament. That one of the things the Old Testament does is provide skin and bone illustrations of sometimes abstract biblical truths. And Genesis 13 is a tangible, practical illustration of how to live by faith and not by sight. In fact, that's your central point this morning, is that we live by faith, not by sight. We live by faith and not by sight. Now, I think we often can misunderstand or misapply what this looks like. Living by faith rather than sight doesn't mean that your sight doesn't matter. In fact, there are times your sight matters so much, and there are times when faith and sight are not opposed to one another. In fact, the Bible would often tell us that what we set our sights on is what we've put our faith in. See, the adage, you often hear this, that seeing is believing, right? That's actually only half the story because the Bible tells us that believing is seeing. That what you've set your sights on is what you ultimately are believing or trusting in. The Bible teaches us that believing is seeing. And here's actually what Jesus says about this. In his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he says this. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. And then he says this. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Did you see what Jesus just did there? He begins by talking about, hey, what your eye is focused on or what you've set your sights on tells us what our heart is truly like. And he does this by blending both this metaphor of the eye being the lamp of the body and, and, our, and that we cannot serve or give obedience to, to opposing masters. What we set our sights on truly tells us what our hearts are like. And in our passage this morning, we see Lot and Abraham set their sights on very different things that both reflect on their hearts and what their faith was in. First, notice that Abraham set his sights on returning. Abraham set his sights on returning. Look at verse 1. Genesis 13, verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. So if you were with us last week, we saw how Abraham had went down into Egypt. And we asked the question, a he why would a Hebrew ever want to go to Egypt? Right? He went down, and in, and in the midst of this famine... He, instead of staying where God told him to stay, went and took the matter into his own hands and went into Egypt. And he got into this whole mess where he's left the land God promised him. He ended up in Egypt and he got caught up in this situation where he lied to a pharaoh and sold his wife to this pharaoh to be in this harem. 
And God ultimately rescued Abraham and Sarah, his wife, out of Egypt. And now Abraham is returning home. And if you notice, Abraham now went back to the place it all started. He went back to the place where God had first spoken to him. He returned to the place God promised to give him, and there he worships. And hear me, the point you should take home to this is, friends, repentance is always possible. But you've got to set your sights on getting back where you're supposed to be. And this is a direct invitation to any of us here today. No matter how far into Egypt you may have gone, no matter where you currently are, God invites you to come home, to return. The Bible's word is to repent, to turn back, and to pursue after God. Now, I believe people often misunderstand what repentance is. People often misunderstand even kind of how repentance works because the first thing we need to see, and you'll see this in your notes, is that repentance is only for personal sins. Repentance is only for personal sins. See, you cannot, in the biblical sense of the word, repent for the sins of others. And in our world today, we're often called upon to think about, well, our history or our family's history or things that other people around us have done, and we're forced to feel as if we need to repent for things that other people did. And if you look, Abraham doesn't feel that at all. There's not even a hint in Abraham that he needed to repent for for the sins of the Egyptians or even for the sins of his own kinsmen. No, he returns home to repent of his own personal distrust and his own personal sins. And the second thing we need to understand is that repentance isn't just for lost people. Repentance isn't just for lost people. See, we often think, well, the world needs to repent. And yes, that's true, but church, we need to repent. Repentance is an ongoing mark of the Christian life. In fact, one of my favorite people in all of history, Martin Luther, 16th century church reformer, offered some helpful perspective. He's famous, if you remember learning about this in school, for nailing his 95 thesis on a church door in Wittenberg, Germany, and he sparked the Protestant Reformation. And the opening thesis or statement on that document that he nailed on the door says this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he will the entire life of a believer be one of repentance. That the life of a believer is a life of continual repentance, continuing to come home, continuing to turn from sin, continuing to run to God in hope. See, Christianity isn't a one-and-done prayer. That's what we often make it out to be. Well, we got them to say the prayer. Let's just keep them coming and sitting in a seat, and that's all that there is to their Christian life. No, the substance of the Christian life is that the gospel is good news for you every single day. Turning from sin and trusting in Jesus are daily and even often multiple times a day rhythms of the Christian life. No matter how far Abraham went, he was still able to come home. He repents and he turns back and he goes to the place where he was supposed to be. In the midst of all of that, God blessed him abundantly. Look at verse 2. Now, now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, 
to the place where he had made an altar at the first, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Abraham set his sights on returning, getting out of Egypt and going back where God said for him to be. But we see second that Abraham set his sights on peace. That Abraham set his sights on peace because Abraham isn't out of trouble yet. You think, well, he's going to get out of Egypt. His life's going to just go easy from there. Well, not quite. Look what happens in verse 5. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were in the land. Think about it. Wow. Abram has just left due to a great famine, and now he returns to great blessing. Blessing so great that there begins to be trouble. Just a side note here. I think this tells us that this idea that some of us have that everything would be better if we had more stuff simply isn't the case. I don't, I don't generally quote from uh, rap songs during sermons, but I do think what, what P. Diddy had in mind when he said, more money, more problems, is exactly what Abraham is experiencing here, right? You have all this stuff. You don't have room anymore. I was glad there were people in the room that knew who I was talking about. That was helpful. I was nervous about that. This is exactly what happens. There's so much stuff that can't begin to live together, right? And notice there's other people living there too. They've also got the Canaanites and the Perizzites here. Abraham and Lot were at a room and someone had to go. And look what Abraham does here. Rather than seek after his own interests or seek to trick Lot to sell his assets or to try to one-up him or outsmart him, he displays his faith through love of neighbor. Rather than rely on his wisdom like he did in the Egypt situation, he trusted God. Look what he says, verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take to the left hand, then I'll go to the right. Or if you take to the right hand, then I will go to the left. Abraham trusted God and he put before Lot the opportunity to make a decision. Go wherever you want, Lot. Notice Abram is staying in the land where God told them to stay. But he said, Lot, you go where you want. Rather than live under Abraham's influence and protection, Lot wants to go and make a life for himself. But Abraham sets his sights on peace. Let's not have all this strife and conflict here. So Abraham could have fought over the whole situation, couldn't he? He could have continued to dwell in strife. He could have sought it, but instead he sought to deal with it rather than let the problem linger. He embodied what Jesus would later command us in his, and again, his, his most famous sermon where he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Abraham knew peace was the most important thing for him to pursue. And hear me, believer, your life is going to end up having conflict in it. You're either coming out of conflict, you're in conflict, or you're going to go into conflict. And hear me, sometimes these conflicts aren't even rooted in any sort of sin. 
But sometimes it's just differences of opinion or things you can't control or just life in a fallen world. You're going to have conflict with other people, whether it's in your house or even in this church, you will. I'm just going to go ahead and set that up. You will have conflict with other people somewhere in your life. Even the life of the apostles, there was occasion for conflict. Acts 15 records that Paul and Barnabas had a difference of opinion over whether to bring this guy Mark along with them on their missionary journey. And sometimes conflict just happens, and it isn't even necessarily anybody's fault for these things. But we need to ask ourselves, and this question's in your notes, what attitude do you take during conflict? What attitude do you take during conflict? Are we like Abraham, seeking not to pick a fight where a fight isn't necessary? Do we pursue peacemaking? Or will we, like like much of the internet today, enter into conflict no matter how how mild it might be and make it the war of the century? Some of us would rather be right than be at peace. And the Bible says maybe you need to think about peace over winning the argument. Friends, may we be like Abraham and set our eyes on peace. But now the the passage turns from the sight of Abraham to the sight of Lot. And Lot, who's Abraham's nephew, sets his sights on Sodom. Sets his sights on Sodom. Sodom. Look at this. This is so interesting. Verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. See it? Lot set his sights not on the promised land. He could have stayed there in the promised land, but on another land. And it's interesting, verse 10 almost directly quotes from Genesis 2, where it says, hey, he looks at this land, and and it looks well-watered like the garden of the Lord. Rather than stay near his family and stay where God had, had made promises, he wants to move out and get out of the land of promise. And throughout Genesis, we see something interesting. We, as we've kind of journeyed with Abraham, Lot has been kind of along for the ride, hasn't he? Let me give you some verses. You can kind of write these down and look at these. Genesis eleven thirty one. There we learn that Abraham and Lot and Sarah, there it is, went forth together, and Lot is along with them. Consider Genesis twelve four where we see, so Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. And then we even see at the start of the chapter, chapter 13, verse 1, so Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. And so Lot's been sort of along for the ride. He's never really done too much, as we've sort of seen throughout Abraham's, through, through our short look at the life of Abraham. But we get a hint that something is about to happen, right? He moves out. He's got his sights set on Sodom. And there at the end of verse 10, we see this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. We get a little preview of something we'll see when we get to chapter 18 and 19, that the Lord was going to destroy this place that Lot was settling in. And then look what happens. Look what happens. Verse 11. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east 
Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Here we see an incredible moment of opportunity for Lot. And Lot takes off to Sodom, and we learn a little bit about Sodom. It's a place where the people were wicked, and what looked like the land of promise was actually a land of promiscuity. What looked like his hope was actually going to be Lot's downfall. And Lot made a decision based on the look of the land that it looked like Eden rather than living by faith in what God said it was. And, and living by faith in the land God said he would give to Abraham. And here I think we see a real danger. Hear me, young people, hear me here. You can live your whole life piggybacking on the faith of your parents. Lot was, while he was Abraham's nephew, he was in many ways like a son to him and had followed Abraham along and all these things. He had heard Though his whole, he, he had heard all of these promises given to Abraham. And you can go your whole life, just like Lot had, having an assumed faith rather than a received faith. This is something that you'll see in your notes. There's a question there. Have you made your faith your own? Have you made your faith your own? Are you ready When there's going to be outward pressures of this world and maybe even inward pressures from the folks in this room, when there's going to be inward pressure to forsake your faith or to even step out and go, well, your faith isn't that big of a deal. You will face pressures from without and within on all sorts of issues. There are going to be places, hear me, where you will go where it's not going to be popular to be a believer. There's some of you, I'm not much older than, than, than some of the younger folks in this room, and I'll tell you something, you'll be called names, and you may even lose friends at a point in your life over having to stand firm in your faith. Are you ready for that? Are you ready for people to, to do all sorts of things and to call you names? And there's going to have to come a moment in your life when you, not, when you don't simply believe this because your parents want you to, but because you've made a personal commitment in the gospel of Jesus. Have you had that moment? Jesus speaks scary words when he says, there's a day of reckoning coming for folks, regardless of who you are, that have an assumed faith rather than a received faith. And he speaks about this in Matthew chapter 7. And he says, there's going to be a day before the judgment seat of God. And here's what it says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Notice they offer all these platitudes. They go, hey, did you not see that we prophesied, we cast out demons? Lord, did I not attend youth group every week? Did I not go to vacation Bible school every single year? I even volunteered in the nursery. And yet, he's going to respond, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. Have you made this faith your own? Do you know God? Or do you simply know about 
God because your parents or whatever influence may be there. And those are good gifts that you have parents that have taught you these things. But there's got to be a moment when you take that a hold for yourself. Because Lot had been through everything Abraham had been through. He saw God deliver him, and yet he still chose to go east. And Lot should have known better than to go east. In fact, Abraham had likely told Lot all these, all these accounts we see from Genesis 1 to 11. It's very likely that Abraham knew these accounts and told them to Lot. And one thing you'll see as you read through these early chapters of Genesis is you never want to go east. Adam and Eve, when they were exiled, were exiled to the east out of Eden. Cain, after he killed Abel, he settled, we're told in Genesis 4.16, to the east. And in Genesis 11, we're told how the Tower of Babel people scattered to the east. Even after Abraham laid this stuff before Lot, Lot still chose to do what he did. Have you made your faith your own? And let me put in a side note here for the parents. Let me put in a side note here for parents or guardians. Be faithful to love, pray for, and teach God's word to your family. But if you've done these things to the best of your ability and your child still goes to Sodom, don't blame yourself. Don't blame yourself. Trust in God's goodness and his grace. Because hear me, Lot set his sights on Sodom. And yes, Lot even went and settled there. But that isn't the end of the story. We're going to see in the next few weeks that God was going to chase Lot out of Sodom through a storm of fire from heaven. And God can do the same for your prodigal child. We may not know when, we may not know how, but do not give up hope. Abraham displayed this sort of hopefulness. And he trusted that God would ultimately work it out. He had been faithful to Lot. And yet Lot still chose to set his sights on Sodom. And then the next thing we see is that Abraham set his sights on the promises of God. Abraham set his sights forth on the promises of God. Notice a few things here. Notice what God says to Abraham. Verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from them. So Lot's not hearing any of this. Lot has missed God speaking clearly and revealing himself to Abraham in the midst of this. He says to Abraham, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. Does that phrase, lift up your eyes, sound familiar? Notice Lot in verse 10 lifted up his eyes. And so God now calls Abraham to lift up his eyes, but they see very different things because one is looking through the eyes of faith and the other is not. Both can look up and see very different things. And God reiterates his promise to Abraham. Look at verse 15. For all the land that you see, I will give to you, Abraham, and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. 
So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. You see it? God says, walk throughout the land, Abraham. Survey it. Explore it. All of it is yours. And God reaffirms his promise of land, but he also reaffirmed his promise of family. Abram here and and Sarah are still barren, no children, getting up there in age. And yet he promises that he would give him offspring like the dust of the earth. Now that's a lot of kids. There's a lot of dust on the earth, isn't there? Just consider that just from Abraham, he's considered one of the key figures or the father of faith in three of the biggest world religions. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam all claim Abraham somehow as a part of their system, right? But I don't think that's ultimately what's in view here. You see a question there in your notes that says, who are the offspring of Abraham? And I think there's really three ways to answer the question. There are sort of three, three groups or three ways to answer. Who are the offspring of Abraham? Well, of course, it starts with the nation of Israel, right, that is going to come right from Abraham. Abraham will eventually have a child, miraculously, that will, that will give birth to the nation of Israel. We'll see that later in Genesis. But there's something even bigger than that going on here. See, the ultimate and true son of Abraham is Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ. In fact, I want you to see this. This is super interesting how the gospel of Matthew opens up. Here's what he says. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, think think again as somebody who would have known the book of Genesis and would have known the Old Testament, and you see a genealogy here. Certainly, that's to cue you in to the book of Genesis here, right? The book of genealogies. And then you see that he is the son, the offspring of Abraham. So who's the offspring of Abraham? Yes, the nation of Israel. Yes, Jesus Christ. But the Bible also says that anyone who is united by faith in Jesus, that all believers, Jew or Gentile, who believe on Jesus Christ are the offspring of Abraham, are the children of Abraham. And there's a ton of places we could go. But let me just show you two spots. Two spots, Galatians chapter 3, here's what Paul says, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he says, Now then, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Here it is. So those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. That we enjoy the blessings of the offspring of Abraham by believing on Jesus Christ. Or consider Romans chapter 9. Now, Romans 9 is often a controversial chapter for folks in the church. I don't think it needs to be, really. Because here's here's what it says here. Uh, Romans 9, verse 6. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. Now, stop. He's talking about how... God, how it seems as if the majority of Israel, the majority of Jews in Paul's day, had rejected Jesus as their Messiah. Most of the physical sons of Abraham had not, were not believing 
and the true and better son of Abraham, Jesus. And Paul's point is, it's not that the word of God has failed. Here's what he says. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But it's through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And he says this. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of promise who are counted as the offspring. In other words, those who believe in Jesus as the Messiah, they are the offspring of Abraham. That we as the church, as people who believe in Jesus, are the truest and fullest fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. And that means, hear me, when he promises Genesis 13 verse or Genesis chapter 13 verse 16 that he is going to have offspring as innumerable as the dust of the earth that that's a promise that there is going to be a whole lot of believers on the other side of this whole thing there's going to be a ton of believers we may not see our current struggle and or in our current moment but God is at work and his mission to see all the nations reached has a completion date. Look what John saw. John gets this vision in the book of Revelation, and he sees this incredible vision, and here's what he sees. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could count. Sounds like the dust of the earth, right? From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and see that we see that god has a in the end will have an innumerable people for himself that in the end god's people will number and be as numerous and innumerable as the dust of the earth friends i am optimistic about the future of the gospel and the future of the world because the bible tells me to be so and the bible tells me that this world as it currently is isn't my home anyway And if this passage should do anything for us, you should hear an invitation to come and experience the blessing of Abraham found in Jesus Christ alone. To come through repentance and faith and to find forgiveness of sin, eternal life, and in a relationship with God. Don't be like Lot, but come, be like Abraham and trust in the promises of God. Of God and do it personally for yourself, not simply because someone else has done it. But if this passage should do anything else, I think it should lead us as the body of Christ to commit ourselves to obey the Great Commission. That Jesus' last words should be our first priority. Here's what Jesus says is kind of the last thing he says before he ascends into heaven. Here's the mission, the mission he gave to us. He says this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He says, go with the gospel, baptize new believers into the community of faith, and teach and submit to be taught to the truth of God's word. This is the great commission given by Jesus. One command, make disciples, supported by go, baptize, teach. And friends, so often churches have made this so complicated. And I would lay before you, and this question is there in your notes, what part can you play? What role can I play in the great 
Commission. Friends, who do you know who you can share the gospel with? Are there young believers around you who you can begin to teach even the basics to? And if we can't do these things, what are we doing to prepare ourselves to be comfortable doing so? Have you talked to anybody who might be able to show you how to share your faith or or teach another believer? Lord, help us commit ourselves to the Great Commission because, you know, the Great Commission, unlike so many other things we focus our attention on, has a promised completion. He promises that we're going to go to every tribe, tongue, language, and nation, and there's going to be a day when God has every tribe, tongue, language, and nation for his own. People from those nations. We don't know when, but God has promised today when believers in Jesus Christ will be as innumerable as the dust of the earth. To put it the way the prophet Habakkuk puts it, he says the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. There's a lot of water on the sea, my friends, right? It's literally everywhere. Church, the success of our mission is secure. So why do we give ourselves to less secure ventures so often? Why do we live for things that are so much less than the glory of God among all people everywhere? Again, I've given you space at the bottom of your notes, and I want you in our time of reflection and response to write down steps you can take this morning. Maybe you realize that you have had an assumed faith, and you want to make a commitment this morning to become a follower of Jesus. I want you to write that there in that place, and I want you to see me here after the service, and I'd love to talk with you about becoming a follower of Jesus. But for most of us, as as people who, who claim to be followers of Jesus, what part can we play in the work of God in the world? What can we do, whether in this church or in our homes or in our workplaces, to begin to further the Great Commission? And may we set our sights on the day when the children of Abraham, believers in Jesus, will be as innumerable as the dust of the earth. Let's stand and let's pray together. Father, you are good to us. You have given us incredible promises. And because you are sovereign and you keep your promises, we see this vision of you having a people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation, and we believe it, and we look forward to it. And Lord, we don't need to, th- to fret, because you're still on the throne, and you will keep your promise to us. Lord, I pray if there's anybody here within the sound of my voice who doesn't know you, that you would capture their hearts, that you would... By grace, give them faith to see you and to see your promises as they are, as beautiful and glorious. Lord, I ask that for those who do know you, that you would just entrance us with a vision of giving ourselves for your glory among all people. Lord, I ask and pray that you'd be honored in our worship. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. with a buddy on Thursday and we we stumbled upon 
uh, spring. We were walking down in the hill country above uh, Lake Barkley, actually. And it was a spring that had a stone structure built around it. And it had been used in an old homestead. We found a foundation back there. And uh, that, bu- that water was still bubbling up out of the ground, just as pure and clear as you can imagine. And when this song, There's a Fountain, was written, it was written in 1771. So when we think of fountains, we think of like the thing with goldfish in it in front of the courthouse or something, you know. But a fountain was a spring. And I guarantee you, that spring down there in that, on that hill is probably, it was flowing on, at the time when Jesus was walking this earth for thousands of years and it's still flowing and uh, it, it is still producing and that's just like the blood of Jesus Christ, amen still flowing, not just that day on the cross but that flow still washes white as snow, we're going to close out with the first and the, and the last verses so one and four and uh, we'll be done All right. and there is a fountain Filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains, lose all. Their guilty stains and sinners plunge beneath that blood, lose all their guilty stains. Verse 4 Ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds. card and invite some folks uh, who may feel comfortable to tune in online or to join us in person this week and we close with a benediction a promise from God's word from the end of the book of Galatians the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you in spirit amen